he who controls the spice controls the universe. Welcome, my mere mortalites, to another round of the book reviews. My name is Kyron, and I do these book reviews for those who want to transcend beyond their own mere mortality, to learn something interesting, to go deep into the depths of what humanity has to offer. And boy, do we have a fun one today. It is one of the best-selling science fiction books of all time. We have June by Frank Herbert. This book was published in 1965 and it is pretty hefty, about 570 pages in length, including the terminology and some appendices at the end. It's a sci-fi classic, as I mentioned, so this is very, very popular in terms of Lord of the Rings type level of creation of a universe, the narrative, the storytelling, all those sorts of things. Now, this is the, I think, first that was published of the, the June world, the June series, I guess, And it's looking at this world of Arrakis and how this world is essentially pretty inhospitable. It's barren. So it's a desert type world. There is a lack of uh, resources. There's the spice. There's the animals. There's all sorts of different things going on. And above all, there's a lack of water. They are very, very wary and uh, aware of where their water is, the moisture, and they take all of these steps to protect themselves. On top of this world is then the narrative of the persons in the book. So this is things like Paul Atreides, who is essentially a duke. He's part of a royalty, I guess, and he suffers a betrayal and is then trying to reclaim his heritage and get revenge on the people who have done him injustice. And then there's all of these other characters associated with him, his mother, his, you know, girlfriend slash wife slash partner slash, uh, you know, mentors, all of these different types of people linked up in this huge narrative and uh, I think I'll leave the plot line there for the moment. The book itself carries many, many themes within it. It goes over many different topics as goes into religion, ecology, you know, history, mythology, all of these different things, politics, war, science. Oh, there's, it, it goes into many different ways. So uh, you will, as reading, see all of these different things popping up and being like, oh, okay, there's an interesting side thing I could explore. Maybe that'll be useful in the in the future, maybe this is just a, like a little distraction, all of these sorts of things. As I mentioned, this was part of a series when it was first published. And I think there was about six books that Frank Herbert himself wrote. So this is June, June Messiah, Children of June, God Emperor of June, Heretics of June, Chapter House, June. And then there's these whole series which were created by his son and I believe by, by Kevin J. Anderson. So I'm not sure if he, he was another writer or not. And this has created the the mythology that is behind June and why there are so many different books and why it has that Lord of the Rings type feel where it is a completely new universe and it has so many characters, so many timelines, so many interconnecting weaving stories and things like this. What's really interesting, I guess, is how he came up with it because apparently... From what I could gather, he was basically just tripping balls on psilocybin mushrooms and thought, "Mm, yeah, you know what? I could create a book out of this. So not exactly that, but it's also mixed with the uh, Oregon sand dunes. He went there when he was uh, younger, I guess, and before this book was published. And it explains a lot. So there's many things that are contained within the book that you can see in real life examples. It's not just pure imagination. It is obviously like most things human taking from something that exists and me weaving it with something else, melding it, changing it, taking away this thing, adding something else. 
which really adds to the the flavor, I guess, of this book and why it is so, so popular. We'll jump onto the first theme, and this is water and spice, all you need in life. And we're looking here at scarcity mostly. So what true scarcity is, we can see within this book that there are a couple of elements, the two main ones being water and spice on the planet of Arrakis and why they are truly, truly scarce. And this is mostly due to external and environmental factors. So the water, obviously, it's just a really hot desert dry planet and the, the population there is basically already at peak level and they are doing things like wearing still suits where they have plugs up their noses to capture and reclaim all the moisture in their body. There are no pools of water. It doesn't rain on this planet. All the water that they have is essentially the stuff that is already contained within them. They can't get this water from elsewhere. Although there is water hidden on the planet, it's very, very hard to get. And there's a, a lot of interconnected things related to that. So essentially water is very, very scarce. The other scarce thing is spice. And this is because it has some very interesting properties relating to prescience to being able to predict the future or see into the future somewhat and this is valued very very highly and it's also very very hard to get because it's somewhat guarded i guess by the the worms which are these gigantic creatures with mouths uh, 100 meters in diameter which can go grow as large as i think 400 meters although it's hinted that they can grow even larger so there's this true scarcity in the environment of this planet which is something at least in the, the Western world, you don't see so much in terms of environmental factors. What we have is more enforced artificial scarcity. So if you look at things like a Lamborghini or if you look at something like a Bitcoin where there's only 21 million, but it's just an arbitrary thing that we've created. You look at Pokemon cards and their rarity and things like this. We have a lot of artificial scarcity in our world. And then in this world is where you see the true scarcity, which is of determined by environmental and external factors. So we have the spice, we have the water, and both are very scarce. So what do humans do? How do they behave with this scarcity? And I think this book has two approaches to it or two different takes on how they might do it. So the first is the House Harkonnen, which is very ruthless and cruel. By the way, if I'm mispronouncing any of these names, it is what it is. It's just how I read it and heard it in my head. And they are just beasts one of the dudes is called beast rabbin and so you have the baron you have beast rabbin you have the nephew and they just act with malice they have this subjugation of their population they enjoy uh, treachery infighting they enjoy doing sneaky tricks of poison and all of these different things they take enjoyment in the in the cruelty aspect of it, I guess. And the other is the Freeman. So these are the natives of the planet of Dune. And whilst ruthless, I would say they're also kind. So it seems like the ruthless factor is what appears in both cases. If there's a scarce resource, you don't have the uh, ability to not be ruthless. You have to make some very tough decisions. And that's what I really mean by ruthless. The tough decision-making this person lives or this person dies. We go over here and if we get this wrong, we all die or there's more abject poverty or misery or bad things happen. So that is part of both of their decision-making. But I think there's a kindness behind the Freeman. They have this collectiveness. We share our water. My water is part of the tribe, is part of the group, is part of the Freeman. Everyone owns it. And so although you have the scarcity in both 
cases, you sort of need to be ruthless to obtain the scarcity or make decisions related to the water and the spice and things like this. You don't have to be necessarily cruel as well. You can be ruthless, but have kindness in your ruthlessness and, uh, you know, be trying to aim for a brighter future. And if, if there wasn't scarcity, then you wouldn't be ruthless, essentially. And then following from this is, okay, what would be Arrakis like without the scarcity? So let's jump 300 years into the future. They follow this big plan that there is to create ecology, to get lakes and pools and fix the temperature and the climate and water is no longer a scarcity. How would the freemen behave, for example, in that situation? Would they still have the ruthlessness? I would say no, because they'd have the kindness deep buried within them and they're only making these hard decisions because of the scarcity. And then if the scarcity went away, the, the kindness would remain. It did also get me thinking, you know, would they then create their own scarcity? Is scarcity something that humans just need because it's such a a big driving factor of how we know to value what we value? You know, I value this thing because it's scarce and no one else can get it. Whereas what if we solve all the scarcity problems? Do we just do as we do in real life? And I would argue this is what happens they would probably end up creating their own NFTs or Pokemon cards or Lamborghinis because the scarcity isn't there. Well, all right, I guess we've got to make it now. The other theme isn't so much about the world and the planet. It's more about sci-fi in general. And I would say it's the essence of sci-fi, making boring stuff fun. Now, this book covers an incredible amount of things. I already listed in the synopsis some of the things like religion, politics, war, science, etc., etc. But when you get down to it, it has even more nuance in it. You know, there's a life cycle of the sandworms. There's the hero worship and the culture that is behind uh, Paul and I think his name of Mal Maldib. That's I think that once again, that's how I'm sort of pronouncing it in my own head. There is the linguistics aspect. So this is the, you can see taken from Arabic culture, which is obviously reflected in this because it's a desert world. It's very sandy. It's very dry. It's very, et cetera, et cetera. There's the minute human nuances. So this is where they're looking at another person and by just like the glint in their eye, they can tell, oh, they're thinking this and then I'm going to be able to react in this way and things like this and et cetera, et cetera. The origin of myths, there's so many different things in this. Now, I think the, the, the fun part of sci-fi is that it makes all of this fun. It condenses it into the good highlighting parts. I read the book and I'm not reading through a tome of text. I'm like, oh, what's going to happen next? It's very rapid. We switch from one scene to the other. We don't get the five days of traveling from here to there. They just travel there. And this is what happens in, you know, good stories in general. But I would also say in sci-fi, it's, it's really connecting this and condensing it down these, these abstract parts and then making them fun. I feel you're given a taste of what this world would be like if it was an actual reality, if this actually happened in the Appendix 2, which is on the religion of June. And this is talking about how as humanity spread out over this universe and to these different planets and whatnot, they decided, okay, religion's kind of bad. We're killing each other. We're doing all these bad things. Let's like get together and we'll create a super religion, the religion of religions, the, the mythology behind it. And so they get all these people together and it just becomes an instant snooze fest. They spend years and years, like a decade, trying to create a document, compiling all these religions together, release it. In the end, no one's happy because of it's a shit product and it took, you know, a decade to create and et cetera, et cetera. That 
is what reality is like. It is boring. It's monotonous. It leads up with everyone being unsatisfied. It has, you know, wasted bureaucracy and bullshit and politics and not the fun side of politics like presented in the book. It's the shit side of meetings. Oh God, meetings. Another fun aspect of the Dune book and what sets it apart from some other sci-fi books is that it doesn't really emphasize the technology part of things. While there are some cool technological things in the book, such as the las guns, the shields, the different types of poisons and things like that, most of it is related to the human interactions and actually is more looking at the past, I guess. Science is not only forward-looking, i.e. how can I create this new technology, this phone to do this thing or this light or this uh, interconnectivity via the airwaves and things like that. No, you can also use science to look at our past and so look at the mythologies. We can use science to uh, change the world of something barren into maybe something that it used to be, uh, such as happens in the book, because there's the salt pans and the Arrakis used to be full of water and things like this. So what sets Dune apart, I think, is, uh, you know, it's a really good sci-fi book and it's really fun, obviously, but the essence of it is that it also has this uh, you know, not emphasizing technology. It's it's looking at some other aspects of humanity, the psilocybin mushroom slash spice, the uh, religion, the jihad that's in the book, and then compare that to our everyday world and the Islam and things like this. Onto my personal observations and takeaways. I've already mentioned how it was quite well researched and how he spent a lot of time looking and drawing from different sources in the current world and bringing them into this fantastic landscape that is June. And I think he just did this really, really well because there was no big gaps that left me thinking like, oh, that doesn't make sense. Why Why is this this way? And yet they could have you know, easily use this thing to create the world and make it a better place and things like this. So I think he spent obviously a lot of time researching, then also the writing of it, compiling it together to make sure there was no real big loose ends that leave you just going, huh? Like why, why was that? Style-wise, I think the chapter flow is fantastic. There's not too much jumping from the Arrakis homeworld and, you know, dunes and sand and all that sort of stuff. And then onto an external planet where the emperor is and then to this other place and whatnot. No, I think they all go relatively smoothly. Not too many characters introduced at once. And he has a somewhat nice habit of killing off characters. So it's like, oh God, okay, thank you. I don't need to remember him and how he fits into the story anymore. So it just went really nicely. I think that was uh, one of the things that I really took from this book was I didn't have to go back and think like, oh, geez, what did that guy do again? Like, what was he doing? No, it just went nice and smooth. I could follow it from start to finish without having to go back and go, oh, what was that? He also included those little snippets at the start from Princess Irulan. I think that's how you pronounce her name. Irulan, I don't know. And those uh, are nice because they give a little summary of the chapter before you read it as well, but still keep you hooked and don't give, obviously, the details away of what actually happened. So nice little snippets throughout, just little techniques that uh, the author, Frank Herbert, used to, to create this flow in the book. My last observation takeaway is that there's just something about the grandeur of big things that make it fascinating. The worms, for example, are just a fantastic creation. I was fascinated about them from start to finish. And, you know, I wanted to know more about them. I wanted more examples of how they almost got eaten by a worm or taken away or whatnot. And, you know, I, I think this is just a human thing. Like if you've ever been near an elephant or a giraffe, it's just 
the majestic nature of them. They're so big and they pale in comparison to how big these worms supposedly are. So there's just something about grandeur that I, I really love. And I, I'm super glad he introduced the worms into this book because they were fantastic. I really loved reading about them, hearing about them. So in summary, it's a fun world and I can see why it has its fanatics. I found it easier reading than Lord of the Rings and the flow, the chapter, the style, I really, really enjoyed the characters, the worms, all of that stuff was fantastic. The only downside, I guess, if you wanted to put it, was the poetry and the songs that are contained in small snippets. I, I didn't really care for them. I would sort of skip over those tiny little parts. Uh, other than that, though, I found it a fantastic re book for reading at night. Uh, but I'm not sure I'm going to willing to invest the time that it would take to read the other 16 plus books or however many they are. So all in all, I'm giving June by Frank Herbert a 7 out of 10. Very, very solid read. And that is it for today, my Mimolites. Thank you for joining me to this part of the audio. What do you think of June? Have you seen the new June movie that is coming out either now or very soon? Uh, I would love to know all of these things. The best way to do that for me would be via a boostergram. I really like getting boostergrams in. So this is just a way of you being able to connect with me really directly in your podcasting app. So if you go to newpodcastapps.com, go to ones which have value enabled and you can then send me a message via there. Requires some additional steps, I know, but this is the future of podcasting and this is also, I, I really enjoy getting direct messages rather than going onto the Instagram, for example. Although you can do that at Mere Mortals Podcast and also onto the Discord. You can go there, but Boostergrams are a fun way and it's a way of introducing you into the show as well because I will start reading them out and interacting with you more for book suggestions for things I got wrong, I got right, all of that good stuff. Other than that, I hope you're having a fantastic day wherever you are in the world. Kyron out.